Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see y'all, and happy Mother's Day. It's a big day uh, for moms. Uh, Historically, uh, this means uh, hopefully that you won't be cooking your own uh, lunch or dinner today or or cleaning up the house, uh, but you'll have a group of people who are doing that for you. Uh, I know in some of our houses it doesn't work that way because uh, your kids are terrible, Uh, (laughs) like I was growing up. And uh, I'm so thankful for my mom uh, who went home to be with the Lord uh, now over 30 years ago. But I remember after I became a Christian, started going to church, uh, I went to this Baptist church in Atlanta and every Mother's Day they would like have mom stand up, they'd give them roses, and then they would give special prizes to the newest mom, uh, the oldest mom, and the mom with the most kids. And every year, this mom with like five kids won. Like every single year, like she had it down. She was the champ. And then my mom came to Christ, and I took her to church on Mother's Day. And when they said, okay, if you have over four, and then only two people now were standing, and they asked this lady, how many do you have? And she said, five. And she asked my mom, how many do you have? And she said, 13. <laughs> and I know in that lady's heart of her hearts, she was cursing my mom. <laughs> but my mom was the champ, and so good Mother's Day. And happy Mother's Day to y'all. Uh, very thankful today also for uh, Pastor Trey and Pastor Michael for the last couple of weeks of preaching two excellent sermons through chapter 4 and chapter 5 of uh, 1 Corinthians. You, in fact, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 6 in your Bible. Uh, this morning before I start, I want us to take a moment and pray uh, for our uh, mission team to Jordan. Jordan. Uh, um, Rick Mitchell, one of our own members, and some people from uh, some other churches, including uh, Pflugerville, our Pflugerville Mother Church, are there in Jordan working with uh, Syrian refugees, uh, bringing the gospel to that area. Uh, and so we want to be praying that God would use them powerfully. Uh, a couple of our team members were not able to go. Uh, uh, one of our elders and his wife, uh, Scott and Nan Purcell, Nan's mom, uh, went home to be with the Lord uh, this past week. And, uh, and so we want to be praying uh, for them, uh, and uh, especially on this Mother's Day, just thankful that uh, she is enjoying an incredible celebration as uh, not just a faithful mom, but a servant of Christ. And uh, we've been blessed by uh, Phyllis's life, and I miss her. She's supposed to be sitting right over there. Uh, and so... Um, We want to pray for that family as well and pray for our own involvement in what God is doing to bring the gospel to this community and beyond. So let's pray and then we'll uh, launch into the word. God, I pray for Rick Mitchell right now. Uh, My brother, I pray that you'd fill him with your spirit. God, that he would sense your hand and your power on him, that you would gift him with the gifts that He needs, with the words that He needs. I pray pray that with this team, You would place Your Word in their mouth. Lord, You would give them both wisdom and winsomeness as they interact with these people. uh, That they would see them as what they are, image bearers of God. uh, People that You made for Yourself. People that You sent Your Son for. And Lord, I pray that You would wake these people up with the Gospel that Jesus would come to them even in their dreams and that they would respond as they hear the Word shared. 
And Lord, I pray for a great harvest from this team. And Lord, I pray for our part in what you would have us do in the great adventure. Uh, not uh, if we serve, but where we serve. Lord, I pray that you give us clarity in that. And we thank you especially for our moms in this room uh, who sacrifice greatly uh, for their children, for their husbands, for their families, uh, for the next generation. Bless our moms today and thank you especially for Phyllis, uh, for her love for you, for her faithfulness to the Word, to share it, to lead the church. God bless her this day. And Lord, we know that's true. Like right now, in Your presence, she is filled with and has full access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Lord, so we're jealous of what she has and what she sees. But I pray that You would comfort her family today with that knowledge. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright, so if you're able this morning, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, let's stand together if you're able and we will... Read this together. Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Michael preached through 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul describes the role of a leader of the church an elder or a pastor, and he describes them as both a steward and as a father. Like that description, by the way, explains 
why Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church. Because Paul is not simply some kind of disengaged observer to the problems within the church. Like he doesn't just see how jacked up this church is and think, man, they're really messed up. No, he's a pastor. And as a pastor, he is both a steward and a father. Like his role as a a steward, as a manager, necessitates his response. And his role as a father determines how, just how, he will respond. Like the first of all, that his role as a steward necessitates his response. What I mean by that is the church does not belong to Paul. Like he's not the pope. He's not the ruler of the church. Like the church belongs belongs to Christ alone. Like his job description is simply to manage well what belongs to someone else as a steward. Like he doesn't have the option to remain silent when he sees people going off the rails spiritually. Like that's the like the role of a pastor. And though often pastors and elders and believers tend to remain silent. Like we see somebody's life going off the rails. We see somebody making really bad choices. Like we know where these choices are going to lead and we don't say anything. We do not have the option to remain silent though many would want us to. Like many would love their pastor or the elders of their church to just shut up about things that are going on in real people's life. But we don't have that option because we're not the owner of the church. We're simply stewards of it. It belongs to Christ and we have a responsibility to the One whose church this is. And so that's Paul's role as a steward. In his role as a father, it kind of determines exactly how he will respond to something. Right In chapter 4, Paul asks this question, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Like when I read that, I think that... That sounds exactly like dad logic to me. Does that sound like dad logic to you? Like, son, what do you want? Like, pick your poison. Pick the spoon you want me to smack you with, right? Like, it sounds like dad logic to me. In fact, I've said this very thing to my kids when they were growing up. I remember telling them after a time of discipline, I said, you know what? This could be your very last spanking. I mean... Honestly, I mean, I didn't sit around like every other parent. I didn't sit around hoping to be able to discipline my kids. Maybe today I'll be able to spank them. I hated doing that. And so I told them, listen, today could be your very last spanking. It's really up to you. Like if you choose, if you choose different behavior, there won't be another spanking in your entire life. See, that's exactly what Paul was saying here. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? And in chapter 6, he actually brings a little bit of both. You see, the Corinthian church was suffering from gospel amnesia. As we've talked about throughout this series, they had forgotten who they were in Christ and they had forgotten whose they were, who they belonged to. Have you? Like, are you suffering from gospel amnesia? Like, are you living your life 
in light of the Gospel? Are you doing your marriage in light of the Gospel? Are you parenting in light of the Gospel? Do you do your finances? Do you do your job? Are you a neighbor in light of who Christ has made you? Or do you have Gospel amnesia? So in chapter 6, Paul reminds them how they should relate to each other. And what what it means to live in light of the gospel, you know. Uh, this past week, or week before last, I was away at a retreat with the Association of Hill Country Churches. You know, we're part of this association of churches. There are now forty of us in the greater Austin area uh, that are part of this association of uh, this church planting movement. And they called all the lead pastors who were able to come to a retreat that was for three days, three and a half days, that they called the Renew Your Call Retreat. And it wasn't like any retreat I've ever been on. It wasn't filled with meetings and music and games and all that kind of stuff. There was a charge in the morning and there was some share time in the evening and small group discussion. But the bulk of the day was spent in prayer in reflection and in journaling. And it was really, really good because the, the theme of the retreat was remember. Like remember. In the very first challenge, we were given this uh, task to sit down and write out times in our life where God met us. Like moments in our life where we encountered God in, like in the midst of a, a heartache, in the midst of some kind of crisis, in the midst of just a quiet time and a song at a retreat, whatever. Times where we know God spoke to us clearly through somebody else, through the word, through whatever means. And they asked us to write those down. Like write down 10 of them. And as you write them down, like journal, when did this happen? And where were you? Like, what were the circumstances around this situation? And who did God use to speak to you? And what specifically did God say? Like, what does God want you to remember? And why is this important for now? And it was a big task. I mean, because to write out 10 of those, answering those five questions took a lot of time. But we kept circling back to those notes that we had made, those remembrances we had had, because the whole theme was to remember and then return. Return to what? Well, return to those times when God spoke. And remember, He hasn't changed. Those things are so, still true. And then, not just to return, but to rest. To rest in what? To rest in what God has said, what God has done, because all of us have a tendency to forget what God has said, to forget what God has done, to forget who God is, and we need to remember that's the problem here in the church of Corinth. In chapter 6, once again, Paul reminds them how they should relate to one another as members of a Gospel-shaped community. Like even when someone has wronged another, even when there's a grievance between a couple believers, when one of you has a grievance against another, Paul asks this question, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now in the original language in this um, 
text, in this sentence, uh, the Greek, the first word in the sentence is the word dare. And by putting the word dare first, Paul is emphasizing that word. It's showing Paul's utter disbelief. It's as if he's saying, church, how dare you? Like, how dare you? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, you did what? I mean, there was a squabble in the church. There was an issue in the church and you thought the best solution to that was to sue each other? As Christians, are you kidding me? You see, the situation was probably something like this. One believer in the church had in some way defrauded another believer in the church. And to deal with that situation, the one who was defrauded, instead of taking it before the church, he took his grievance before the civil magistrates, which just happened to be like the the Bema seat that they would gather for justice, just happened to be in the center of the marketplace. And so Paul's irritation with this situation is, is part of it is because the believers had forgotten who they are in Christ, but the other part is because their behavior had totally wrecked their witness in the city of Corinth. Like, this guy cheated me. He did me wrong. He ripped me off. And so I'm going to get what's mine. Like, we don't know what the situation is. It probably had to do with property. It's probably one person with more money, more resources, taking another, like taking advantage of another. And so this one who had been taken advantage of goes to court to make sure he's not ripped off instead of going to the leaders of the church and saying, hey, we need to, we need to figure this out. Or do you not know that the saints, Paul writes, will judge the world? Like You're going to court? Don't you remember? Like I've told you this. Like when he says, by the way, or do you not know? And he says it six times in chapter 6. That's his way of saying, you know this. Like this is, this is knowledge I've shared with you. All of you know this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent? to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? Like, have you forgotten who you are? Do you have gospel amnesia? Like, you are saints. Like, that word saints is a word that's not reserved in the Bible for a select few really shiny people. Like that's a word that is a designation for anyone who is in Christ. All of you in this room, if you have a relationship with Christ, you are a saint, which means that you have been set apart by God for God. In fact, that, that's what the term church points to. The word church means the called out ones. It's the ecclesia. God is calling to the nations and gathering a family for His Son, a church. Like the church is God's new community, His family, and we should deal with our issues in a way that is shaped by the Gospel, not shaped by the brokenness of the surrounding culture. Just as a side note, this, of course, is a civil case. That's what's going on here. You you did me wrong as an individual, and so I'm going to take you to court. This isn't a criminal case. Right? Here's some, a good general rule to follow. When God's law is broken, we call the saints. 
Like we have the freedom to do that because you did me wrong. You cheated me, but I don't want to take you to court. I want to deal with it before the saints and like bring this all into the light and let's work through this. When God's law is broken, we call the saints. When man's law is broken, we call the cops. See, this isn't a situation where like somebody's daughter was sexually assaulted by another member of the church and they say, hey, let's just keep this in house. That's not what's going on. Like this is a civil case. This is a property case. And so they're dealing with it that way. If it was a criminal case, it would be okay to bring it before the magistrates. In fact, the church has gotten in trouble over the last few years for dealing with things that should have been handled by the courts in-house and kind of covering it up, often sweeping it under the rug instead of dealing with it in the way they should. And then, of course, the church gets in trouble by dealing with the things that they should deal in-house and bringing that into the court. It's just a real mess, and so we don't want to fall into that trap. And so in addition to reminding them that they are the saints who are set apart, remember, by God and for God, Paul wants them to consider their future role in the kingdom of God. In fact, what he's saying is our future should inform our present. Like he gives them this, it's, it's just weird, guys. It's this weird, mysterious glimpse into the future. To the end of all days. And when he says, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. That's weird. Like how? Like what does that mean? Like can, can we just camp out here and talk about it. And then he adds to that, don't you know that we are to judge angels? Hold on there. Angels? Like fallen angels or regular I got like let's like is there a book about this? Is like how do I dive in deep to this? And yet he doesn't give us any more information. He just gives us this mysterious glimpse into the future and you got to wonder what does this mean? Guys, at very least, at the very least What it means is that the justice in the church, the way we deal with issues like this, the way we deal with grievances, that justice in the church should be superior to the system of of justice in the world. Like we don't look to the world to teach us how to relate to each other. Like what could they teach us? I mean, what's the best they have to offer? I mean, maybe you've seen it play out in just the last couple of weeks with this trial with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and you think, what a train wreck. Guys, that's the best of the best. That's what the world has to offer us. We don't look to the world to teach us how to relate to each other because they don't have gospel standards. Like, they don't have kingdom values that we have. Like, in fact, instead of looking to the world, we look to Christ who told us in Matthew 18, if you're brother has something against you, you go to him in private. Trey talked about this last week. If you have a fault with your brother, an issue with your brother, you go to him in private. And if he listens to you, good news, you want a brother. But if he doesn't, take somebody else. Bring one or two witnesses so that with two or three witnesses, all truth will be established. The idea is, maybe you're wrong, Or maybe they're wrong, but these extra witnesses will help you figure this situation out. And that's a good thing. Now, if it turns out that your brother is in fault, he is in sin, he is unrepentant, then you bring it 
to the church. What Jesus is saying is when your brother is in fault, just have a conversation. I just go to him and have a conversation. Like when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell my leaders who would often come to me and tell me about a situation where another leader wasn't doing what was right or a student wasn't doing what was right. And they would say, we need to make a rule that you can't. And they would like fill in the blank with whatever this person's like one-off behavior was. Make a rule about that. And so my go-to statement was always this. It's always easier to make a rule than it is to have a conversation. I mean, isn't it? Isn't it always easier to make a rule than have a conversation? Maybe you lead a business and it's always easier for you to just make a rule instead of addressing that employee or that customer. It's always easier to send a tweet than it is to have a conversation. It's always easier to preach a sermon then it is simply to have a conversation. But Jesus says, have a conversation. Like just talk with those people. Verse 4, He says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Who don't share our values. Who don't understand the kingdom. Who don't know the power of the Gospel. What are you doing? who don't realize that the two people in this court case are actually brothers in a way that is more true than if they were biologically attached in some way. And then verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Like this is a church that have been bragging about how wise they are. How superior they are. And he's saying, okay, you're so wise. Is there no one wise enough to handle this trivial matter? See, Paul wants them to handle the business of the church in line with the Gospel. The business of interpersonal relationships in line with the Gospel. I mean, after all, if they had been made right by God, they ought to be able to make things right with one another. So Paul concludes in verse 7, you have lawsuits, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Okay, you just showed up in court, you've already lost. Even if you win, you lose. Because you go to court to win. Nobody goes to court hoping to lose. But even if you win this case, you lose. And what have you already lost? You've lost your witness before a watching world. You've lost community within the church? Like Jesus has been dishonored because of how you've dealt with this? Why? Because you failed to love one another. Because you prioritized yourself over Christian community. Because you leaned into the wrong kingdom. The kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of our God. And so Paul asked these two very telling questions that really expose our heart. Why not rather suffer harm? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Like I love to play the game 
would you rather? You know the rules of would you rather, right? You, you put two things in conflict with each other, both that are terrible, and you make someone decide. They can't say, I don't want either one. They have to choose one of those. Like, uh, I used this famously when I met my daughter-in-law, Danielle, for the first time over a, a FaceTime call. Bo introduced us to her when they were just starting dating. She doesn't know me at all. She just knows like I'm a pastor, like her dad's a pastor. And so I just say, Danielle, let me ask you a question. Would you rather punch an old lady in the face or dropkick a baby? And she was like, what? Would you rather punch an old lady in the face or dropkick a baby? Well, I don't want to do either one of those. Sorry. The rules state that you have to choose one. And she chose to punch an old lady in the face. What is wrong with her? My son still married her. Like we had an old lady, my mother-in-law, on the phone call with us. So messed up. But, great game, right? Paul's playing that game right here. Like he's saying, okay, let me ask you a question. Would you rather be wronged or do wrong? See, you've all chosen to do wrong. Because it's just not fair. Like, I don't want to be wronged. Like, the two questions, like, how would you answer these? When Paul says, would you, wouldn't you rather just suffer being wronged or would you rather be defrauded? Your answer would be, no, I, I, why wouldn't I? Because I don't want to lose. Because it's not fair. Because God loves justice, right? And that would be unjust for them to get their way and for me to have to pay the price. But what Paul's getting at is, listen, the value of true community within the church, the value of the kingdom of God, the value of the witness of the gospel, the name and fame of Christ is worth you being defrauded. It's worth you suffering harm and being wronged. I mean, you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Jesus talks about lending without getting back and turning the other cheek and getting slapped twice and going the extra mile and giving away your cloak and not getting it back. Guys, we can't live in two worlds. That's what He's saying to the church here. You can't live as citizens of two competing kingdoms. You can't serve two masters. You can't act as if you are still unrighteous when God has declared you once and for all to be righteous. In fact, that's what He's pointing at in verse 9 when He says, hey, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now it's important to note that this is just a brief list. Paul could add a lot to this, but in this brief list, he's not simply giving a list of actions. This is not simply a list of behavior. These are these people's very identities. Like it's it's a list of identity first and behavior second. 
This isn't simply behaviors of things that people tend to struggle with. This is things that people have doubled down on and have said, this is who I am. And the truth is, when you find your identity in an idol, any idol, whether it is through greed or through your ego or through sex, it will destroy you. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians to live in step with the identity that's been given them in Christ. They've been living as if this God-giving identity doesn't even matter. They've been forgetting the Gospel. They've been failing to be what they literally are in Christ. They are saints, but they've been living like pagans. They are righteous, but they've been living in a way that's unrighteous. They've had Gospel amnesia. And so how do you defeat Gospel amnesia? Well, you remember. You remember the beauty of the Gospel. And that's what Paul has been building this whole case to in verse 11 when he says, and such were some of you. What? What do you mean such were some of us? It's the same word used earlier as in these things. Like these things, like this list that I have, are what some of you were. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Like You need to relearn who you really are. Guys, our identity, our very sense of self is not ours to form. In fact, that's the most countercultural thing that you will hear in the sermon today. Because in our culture today, we are enamored with, obsessed with the idea of self being my true self, living out authentically who I am. But guess what? We don't get to form that. Like my identity, myself is not mine to form. It has already been formed for us and given to us as a gift. And so Paul writes, hey, these things, this list, are what some of you were, but... And that word but actually appears three different times in the original language in the Greek, each before this descriptor. And so literally what he's saying is, hey, this is what some of you are, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Once you were, but now you're not. And so what are they? Well, but you were washed. What that means is that the filth of your sin has been removed. The good news is you don't have to be identified by your darkest moment anymore. By your greatest failure. Like that event that comes to mind whenever you think of sin or failure or shame, the one that the enemy loves to put right in front of your eyes and point out and tell you what a failure you are. You don't have to be identified with that anymore. Like Paul's point in saying in verse 11, but such were some of you, is that listen, that's not who you are anymore. You may still have struggles. You may still have issues. That is not your identity anymore. Like we can stop trying to hide our sin, hide our brokenness, because it has once and for all been dealt with on the cross. We can bring our struggles to Jesus because we have been washed. And... 
but you were sanctified. That means that the grip of sin has been released. Like you have a new identity in Christ. Romans 6 is all about how we need to live out the new identity that was declared over us in our baptism. Buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Live that new identity as someone who's no longer a slave to sin, but has been made a slave to righteousness. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. Like, how has God's grace changed you? How has it changed your desires, your attitudes, your relationships, your behavior? I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. But then he says, you were justified. That literally means to be declared righteous. It means the identity of sin has been replaced. I'm no longer identified by my struggle. Maybe your struggle is on that list. Addiction. Greed. Gossip. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's same-sex attraction. Whatever your struggle is, is not your identity as a Christian. You have been accepted by God Himself and declared righteous before the only court that matters. Like to be a Christian means that this is all true. All of this is true of you right here and right now. Like our identity, ourself is not ours to form. He has already done so. So we need to fight for that identity and we need to fight from that identity. And so simply in closing, just this is kind of where Paul was taking his argument back to the issue at hand. This guy cheated me. So I'm going to take him to court. Paul's point is, listen, um, you think Jesus was cheated? By you? Like if, if Jesus bore our sins on the cross, if He was punished for us, if by His wounds we are healed, and by His stripes, can you take a few stripes of your own? Is it okay to lose every once in a while? He was defrauded by us. By our sin. Is it really that bad that we lose something here and now? One commentator explained it like this. If Christ absorbed all of our wrongs, if He absorbed all of our attacks, if He absorbed all of our rejection, then when others do the same to us, we can practice Gospel memory, which will give us the resources to absorb the blows of others. If, if God declared you not guilty, why can't we do the same with others? And so just in closing, when you look at verse 9 and 10, if you have your Bibles, look at these verses. A lot of people look at this laundry list of sins and their response is this, that is so unfair. It's so unfair. It's so wrong. So we're saying that these people who live in this lifestyle, who've given themselves over to this, that they can't inherit the kingdom of God, that is so unfair. Missing Paul's point altogether because there's only one unfair verse. And it's verse 11. You want to know what's unfair? But you were washed. 
and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is completely unfair. Like we all deserve not to inherit the kingdom of God, but that is not the case because that is what you were. That's not who you are. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even as we come to this table of communion, Lord, help us remember who we are. And help us remember whose we are. We come to a table signifying Your death on the cross. Your body broken for us. Your blood shed for us. And in Your sacrifice, You have purchased for us a new identity. We're no longer a drunkard. No longer a reviler. No longer a gossip. No longer an adulterer. No longer sexually immoral. No longer homosexual. Lord, that's not our identity. Our identity is son and daughter of God. Lord, You did that by Your grace. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I ask You to stand. And while the band plays, I want you to come get your elements of communion. Take them back to your seat and we'll take them together as a church. In Revelation 5, all heaven is weeping. Because no one is worthy to open a scroll held in the hand of God the Father. That scroll that encompasses all of future history and the final judgment. No one is worthy until a new song is sung. Worthy are you, this Lamb of God, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Sinners! In the list that we saw in verse 9 and 10, ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All those identities that in light of the wonder about to be given are all inconsequential. What you've done in the past, what you bring to the table because you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Guys, we have a new identity because of the cross. And on the cross, Jesus gave His body for that identity. Do this in remembrance of Him. And on the cross, the blood of Jesus was shed to wash away the filth of our sin so that it's not the thing that defines us anymore. What defines us is that we've been washed in the blood of Christ. Do this in remembrance of Him. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Church, your failures are not what define you. Your struggles, your addictions, your feelings, you are not self-formed. You have been given a new identity as a gift 
because of what Christ accomplished for you. If you have questions about that, our elders will be down front. We'd love to talk with you, pray with anyone, have any kind of conversations we need to have. God bless you, church. Live out in that new identity today. Bye-bye.